0: okay tonight we are continuing in our study together every thought captive i hope this has been helpful so far and we're going to continue looking at uh, what some objections to the faith are issues that people raise an objection to the existence of god to the truthfulness of the scriptures uh lots of things that we could cover and uh, so here's, here's what we're covering tonight in particular and that is the problem of evil. And I hope to address this uh, from an angle that's, that's very accessible and practical to us. I think this is not new for many people in the room. But I hope that tonight will be extremely helpful. And that we're reminded of the thoughts that exist out in the world that are very real and very, very prevalent. Okay, so uh, just out of curiosity, when I say the problem of evil as a philosophical concept, how many in the room are aware of the conversation that flows from this statement? How many are aware of the philosophical issue here? Okay. So, good. That's fantastic. I'm glad that we're covering this tonight. Um, this, is a, this is a big deal, and I, I hope that you'll see it uh, pretty much right away. That's my hope, anyway. So, here is how one person has stated the issue. Since there are so many cases of significant pain and suffering in the world that God could easily prevent... The fact that all this evil was not prevented means it is very unlikely, if not impossible, that God exists. You've heard an argument like this, I think. At least, maybe not stated exactly like this, but the idea is there. And the idea that's behind this statement is the problem of evil. That's the philosophical idea. There is a problem that evil exists if we also say that God exists. If we say God exists and evil exists, then we have a problem, potentially, for some, right? Unless we can resolve the issue, and in fact, it's not a problem at all. So here's kinda how it goes. If we're looking at it in a logical order, a sequence. Number one, a perfectly powerful being can prevent any evil think we would say, okay, I'm with you so far. True. A perfectly good being will prevent evil as far as he can. Okay. God is perfectly powerful and good. Agreed. So, if a perfectly powerful and good God exists, there will be no evil. There is evil. Therefore, God does not exist. Now, we can at least understand how this logic is present in the minds of unbelievers. Can we at least consent to we get why they're saying this? We can, we can get there. If you say, no, I can't even get there, it's outrageous, then, then you're missing the whole point. You're missing the whole point if you can't get into their mind and say, listen, I'm, I'm actually sympathetic toward that because there's a fundamental misunderstanding that you have about the reality of God but now we've kind of identified it, haven't we? I, I, I would say that at least one of these points is completely false, okay? Um, and the false that exists, exists on kind of uh, multiple counts, but we're gonna get to that, okay? So let's define a couple terms. Evil, you notice that it said in, in, in this logical flow Uh, A perfectly powerful being can prevent any evil. So if someone uses the word evil and you use the word evil, don't you think that we ought to, if we're having a conversation about evil, that we should probably define the word evil the same way? So how, how the world outside of us would define evil is this any and all real or perceived pain and or suffering. That's evil. That's what evil is in worldly, unbelieving eyes and hearts. Any and all real or perceived pain and or suffering is evil. That is not the way we define evil, biblically. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but that's not the way we define evil. The way we define evil is what I put here as number two, second definition. That which is in opposition to God is evil. Okay? Those are very different (laughs) definitions, wouldn't you agree? Uh, So just know that when the unbelieving world says evil, what they're referencing is the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, the problem of even perceived pain and suffering. That's what they're calling evil. There's issues in this world, right? Murder happens. Theft happens. People suffer. People starve. And they're calling that evil. So we have a fundamental issue kind of already because that's not the way we define evil. We would define evil as that which is in opposition to God. Could be a person. Could be a thing. Could be a situation. Could be a philosophy. That's why we just say that which is in opposition to God. Okay? But we're going to continue on. Some people would say evil exists in a couple different realms. There is moral evil. Okay? That's one category of evil. Moral evil. And that's kind of the internal side of evil that, that's in your heart and it flows out. That's, there's, there's evil that happens internally. But then there's another kind of evil evil and that evil is what we might call natural evil that is impersonal and external for example a tornado okay that then kills people there's loss of life there's suffering there's things happen right things break down earthquakes Uh, lots of other things could be included in this freak accident kind of things happen there's a natural evil Uh, then there is also a category of supernatural evil. What is supernatural evil? Well, we would agree that there's supernatural evil, wouldn't we? There is supernatural evil. That is, it's not natural, it's in the supernatural realm. Do we believe that there is evil that exists in the unseen realm? Yes. But then there is also eternal evil and that is more philosophical in a sense because it's evil that exists in a sense in and of itself it never comes into be it just is and it is eternal the concept of evil it doesn't fade away it just is so lots of different ways to think about evil okay what is evil because that's that's the whole issue isn't it it's the problem of evil what what are we talking about what is evil and why do we have a problem with it so here's here's another term and that is theodicy uh, this term is, it answers this question. How can God be justified for the existence of evil? And if you formulate a response, if you answer this question, you have formulated a theodicy. Does that make sense how we're using the word? We have a formulated theodicy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a, my formulation of a theodicy here by the time we're done so that we have a response. Um, but that's what a theodicy it is, and it comes from two words, theos, which is God, and dikaios, which is righteousness or justification. And so it's taking God and justification together, and what we mean is, how can God be justified for the existence of evil? That's where the word comes from, okay? Do you have a properly, a properly formulated theodicy? How do you justify God? How is God justified in the when we know that evil exists evil exists and if god is all-powerful and all-loving why does evil exist something is wrong what is your response your response is then a theodicy okay how can god be justified for the existence of evil so a theodicy is an argument an argument that shows that the existence of evil does not void the existence of god another concept. This next concept is the privation of good. This comes basically the formulation of this idea comes from Augustine um, and it says the concept is that evil is no substance in itself but exists only in terms of privation and what privation means is something that is lacking. So You can think of this in other terms. I think it's helpful because it it helps our mind process what we're talking about. Um, Does darkness exist? Or does darkness only exist because it is the absence of light? Is darkness a thing in and of itself? Or is darkness simply there because there is no light? Is light a thing in itself? Well, we'd have to say yes. Or silence. Is silence a thing in and of itself, or is it simply there because there is no sound? Whereas sound is a thing in itself, silence is not. It is the absence of something. Now, this is very important for our argument. Or health, for example, and sickness. Hot and cold. What are we talking about? One exists because it simply is where something else is not. Darkness exists because there is no light, but darkness is no substance in, in and of itself. So, in those terms, evil has been understood to be, and this is, this is a positive statement, what I'm saying, so this is a good way to think of it, is that evil is the privation of good in that evil is not a substance in and of itself, and if it is not a substance in and of itself, it did not need to be, created this is important did evil need to be created it wasn't a thing and someone and the only there's only one creator and the creator was like there's something missing in this world and it's evil so I made good already now I need to make evil we would have a big problem because God is not evil he is not the author of evil so if we have God creating evil then he's not the God of the Bible, right? So, how do we explain the existence of a thing that is evil if God didn't create it? Well, it's because evil in itself is not a thing in and of itself that is a substance, but good is. And the reason that evil exists is simply when good is lacking. That concept makes sense? So this is not intended to be a theodicy, okay? This doesn't solve all of our issues. It is simply a preliminary concept about evil to help us have this conversation, okay? So if we simply say, well, evil is just a privation of good. say, Okay, evil still exists, so explain to me why God doesn't prevent it. Right, we haven't actually resolved the issue, have we? There is still a problem of evil, Okay, so it goes like this. If God is perfectly sovereign and perfectly loving or good, why does he allow evil to exist? This is a valid question. Can we all agree that that's a valid question? Why is there rebellion, pain, and suffering? If God is loving, if he is good, and if he is sovereign, why? Why? Why do these things exist? We could answer a few different ways. Well, we could say, well, you're right. God does not exist. That would answer it all. That would answer everything. However, we're not going down that road because we know that that's not true. We could say, well, evil does not exist. And we would just be lying. The Bible says evil exists. We all with with it so far. We could say God is not omnipotent. And and omnipotent means all powerful. Or we could say God is not omnibenevolent, all loving. Actually, God has a little bit of evil in him. And the evil side of God just loves for evil to be that. He loves to watch people suffer. Hmm. I don't think that's it, or maybe God is simply just not omniscient. That all the evil is just catching him off guard. He doesn't know. Omniscient means not having all knowledge. Maybe he just it just pops up, and he's ah, I'm just I'm just trying to do my best here, and I didn't know that that was going to happen, and so I, let me clean it up. That we could give all these answers, and they could solve our problem. The issue is. None of these things are true. God does exist. Evil does exist. God is omnipotent. God is omnibenevolent. And God is omniscient. So why does evil exist then? It's a good question. It's not a bad question. And actually, answering that question is very helpful for us. Isn't it? Is your God as good as you thought he was? Is your God as powerful as you thought he was? Is your God as sovereign as you thought he was? Well, maybe not if you're having to experience pain. It could go down a dark path. God is either unable or unwilling to prevent evil. Which is it? Because God is all the things we just said. Well, all the things we just said are true. God does exist. Evil does exist. God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. And God is all-knowing. All that's true. I don't have to argue that for this audience. So then we must conclude that God is either unable, but we already said that he is able, or he is unwilling to prevent evil. We know the answer, but it's not a pleasant answer, is it? In a sense... We just have to admit that. I mean, do you believe that God is truly in heaven delighting in all the evil that is taking place? The pain and suffering? He just enjoys it. Well, that would mean that God is not omnibenevolent in a sense. So what are we saying about God? Either God cannot stop evil from existing or he intentionally wills that evil exists. And if God intentionally wills evil to exist, like we said, does this mean he is not all-loving? Did God create evil? Is he responsible for evil? So, what are the origins of evil and how do they fit into God's plan of redemption? I think that's, that's a good question to ask. So then we, we have to ask, where did evil come from? And what is God's plan with evil exactly? And I think that if we can understand God's plan for evil, it helps us formulate a theodicy, a properly biblical theodicy. And I will tell you that as we look into this, this, none of this information is shocking to the people in this room, but I will tell you that for many people outside of this room, I think the answer is shocking because there is not a well-rounded biblical view of the character of God. God has a very well-defined character. It's just that people want to define him differently than he actually is because they don't like the fact that God wills evil to exist because that's not the God they know. What does it mean that God wills evil to exist? When we look at a couple of passages, you'll, you'll see. So just a few here uh, up front. Genesis 1:31 through chapter 2, verse 3. It says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was? What was it? Very good, except for the evil that he made. Well, that, that's not there, is it? God looked at everything he had made, and it was good. Not bad. It wasn't evil. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. What do we know just happened then? If it's at the end of the sixth day, did oh, maybe that's what God did on day seven. He created evil. Is that what happened? Or what did God do on day seven? He rested. He didn't create anything. So creation is done. And when God looked at all he had made, all he had made, it was good. Okay, look at 1 John 1.5. First John 1 John 1.5. You've got to go from one side of the Bible all the way to the other. Very important character quality about God. This is just one very explicit place that we find it. It says in First John 1 John 1.5, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, tell me, What does that mean? What is that in reference to? In John's dualistic theology, in a positive sense, not in a negative sense, John has a dualism about him, right? You're either children of God or children of Satan. You either belong to him or you don't. You're either in the light or you're in the darkness. And he creates these categories that you're either one or the other. And what does he mean by darkness and light? How does he define that? Good and evil, exactly. And so what he's saying about God is that in God is is goodness. And, And you need to understand that he is purely goodness. And in him, there is not even an ounce, nothing, none whatsoever. There is no darkness in God. There is no evil in him. There is no evil intent in him. God has no darkness in him whatsoever. God is only good. And that is a true character quality of God. Is that important in this conversation? Because evil came from somewhere. But what can we be certain of? It did not come from God. And it is not a thing to be created. So then where did it come from? James 1, 13 through 18. James 1, 13 through 18. It says... Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So we learn several things right here. Whenever, what is it? Yes. I didn't realize that was on the screen. I'm sorry. I was looking here. I was like, there's not a typo here. I don't, <laughs> I don't see it. On the screen, yes. Yes. Sorry. That's James 1, 13 through 18. Sorry about that. So what do, what do we learn right here? When anyone is tempted, tempted to do what? To sin. Tempted with evil. Let no one say... Um, that he is tempted by God. Why? Because God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. God is not the tempter. God is not the author of evil. He does not tempt people to sin. Nothing about evil came from God himself. God is good. He is not the creator of evil. However, evil is exists so a couple of questions why did god then put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden i think that we could have just solved a lot of issues if god had just never put that tree in there don't you agree it's like i mean i can see it god can you not see just in your vast knowledge you put these creatures who are free free human agency is real these free creatures were put in a garden and God put two trees in there. Uh, lots of trees, but two special trees. One tree was the tree of life, and the other tree was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God decided that it would be a good idea to put these two trees in there. And then he would give him give the man rules. And he would say, Listen, there's a tree in here that I put here on purpose. I could have put it somewhere else. I could have put it wherever I wanted. And you know what? No one told me I had to make a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you know what? I thought it was a good idea. I thought that I would put this tree here, right here, and I'm going to tell you, don't eat of that fruit. Did God tempt Adam and Eve? Is he dangling something in front of their face saying, I know you want it. I'm just going to give you this rule, because when anybody gets a rule, they're just going to break it, and I know. That even though, you know, Adam and Eve were not bound by the curse of the fall. Do you know that? You should know that. At least initially they were not. Eventually they would be bound by the curse, but you understand what I mean. Right here, in this situation, before the fall, they are not bound by the curse of the fall. So, they did not have to sin, right? They were not bound, slaves to sin, now, our natural condition is that we are bound to sin. We are slaves to sin. They were not. But then, enter a character. What character enters in? Satan. Satan enters in, and what does he do? He tempts them to sin. God did not tempt them. So that leads us to another question. Why did God create Satan? In God's vast knowledge, he has foreknowledge. And he has perfect sovereignty. He can create creatures that would never sin. You know, God can do that. For example, you will not sin in heaven, and God is the one who restrains you from sinning in heaven. He could have just made heaven already and bypassed this whole earth situation. But it's not how he chose to do it. He chose to create an environment in which there would be free creatures who would sin. But he did not cause them to sin. He did not author sin. He did not create evil. But he did create creatures who would then rebel against God. And there came evil. Because evil is all that which is in opposition to God. So the first time there is opposition to God within humanity, that is when evil comes into existence. Now, it is not a thing to be created. It is simply the absence of obedience to the Lord. All that is, all that is opposition to the Lord is evil, is sin. But here's the thing, is that God is perfectly capable, able of preventing the existence of sin and evil. So then why did he not prevent it and why does he not prevent it today? Why? This is our theodicy that we're creating here. This is what we have to answer. This is why evil is a problem. If God is good and sovereign, why would he ever create a world where evil would exist? Could he not do any better? I mean, how many times does he have to try? Is this the first world he's created? Was this the first Adam and Eve? He says, "Like man, I just keep doing this thing, and they just—it just keeps falling apart. I just—he's trying to get it right. Or did God create things exactly as He intended the very first time with Plan A, and there was never a Plan B, and He knew exactly how things were going to unfold, and He did it intentionally, and He did it willfully, while at the same time remaining perfectly good and completely free of evil and sin. Yes." So, the, of course, the, the, the brief answer is to the whole thing is that God wills evil to exist. God willed evil to exist. And that is the true answer. Because if God did not will evil to exist, then it wouldn't exist. That's pretty logical, actually. God wills Satan to exist, and that's why Satan exists. If God did not will evil to exist, guess what? It would not exist two passages I'd like to look at, and uh, one of them brief, the other one I want to uh, make sure that you turn there with me. So we're going to look first at Ephesians 1.11. Just a reminder, we know this passage. Another way to, to ask the question right now is, why did God ordain the fall of humanity? That's a, I mean, that's a, these are good questions to ask. Okay, there are not bad questions. There are bad answers, but there are not bad questions. It's okay. It's good to think. And I hope that what this has done is say, hey, listen, you know what? I do have some unanswered questions, okay? And is it bad to think through them? No, it is not bad to think through our hard questions. Right? So why did God ordain the fall of humanity? Or did it just happen by mistake? Well, certainly he willed the fall of humanity. It wasn't an accident. It's not that God could have done better. No, he intended for that to happen. Why? That seems crazy. It kind of does. I mean, really. So you're telling me an all good, all loving, sovereign God created humanity with the intention of that creature then rebelling against him and hating him? why that sounds insane but it's actually true so Ephesians 1 11 says and just remember in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who does what works all things according to the counsel of his will he works all things and there are no categories there to say well he meant all things in terms of insert the answer no there are no categories here It is all things meaning all things. There is nothing that God does not ordain that comes to pass, okay? Anything that does come to pass is because God ordained it to be there, right? Okay, so with that in mind, do we have any better answer than that? It's just that God did it, and we don't know why he did it, but just know it and have a good night. We actually do have a little bit better answer than that, It's not going to resolve all your issues because this is a hard one, admittedly. But we do have a good answer. And I believe the best answer we have is found in Romans 9, 6 through 24. So I'd like for you to look there with me, please. Romans 9, verses 6 through 24. And I am going to read that entire passage. So you just have your attention on things that might be related to this question as we read this passage okay but it is not as though the word of god has failed for not all who are descended from israel belong to israel not all are children of abraham because they are his offspring but through isaac shall your offspring be named this means that it is not the children the flesh who are the children of god but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring so I'm just mentioning right here already that you know God didn't mess up there either. You know when Abraham's offspring they, they didn't know. it didn't all work as He intended. You know they were rebellious creatures, and uh, all the things that God promised seemed to not be. It's like well listen, listen maybe you misunderstand how the promise of God is being fulfilled. But know this: God has not failed. Everything he promised is coming to pass. It's just, it just—it doesn't look like you anticipated, and I think this fits into that idea. This is not my ultimate answer. I'm just adding this as we're walk, as we're working through it. Verse nine. For this is uh, this is what the promise said about this time next year. I will return, Sarah. We'll have a son. Not only so, but also Rebecca, when she has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. They were not yet born. They had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Well, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom whom I'll have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you. This is important. This right here is starting to really get at the heart of it. Why did God create Pharaoh? For this very purpose I've raised you up. I not only created you, I put you in the position that you were in, and I raised you up. I put you in this position of power right here for this time in history, and why did I do that? To show my power is that not what it says? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Did God have a reason for creating a person such as Pharaoh to rebel against him and to put, inflict pain and suffering on his people? Why did God create Pharaoh rather than not creating him? Well, because God intended to use him for a particular purpose. And what was his purpose? To make his name known, to show his mighty power. So in other words, God intends to create and do things in order to display the fullness of his character. This is why he's doing this. He wants to display his full character to all of his creation. And without raising up Pharaoh without creating him, there was something that God was not pleased with. And what he was not pleased with was this creation could not see his full power and might, and God was displeased with this. So he created Pharaoh. He raised him up for the purpose of showing his power. Verse 18, so then, He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But you will say to me then, so why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, think about that in terms of context. Could Pharaoh have said to God, God, you cannot create me. I'm sorry. Could Pharaoh have said to God, you cannot make me Pharaoh. I'm sorry. Use someone else. Could Pharaoh have done that? display your power in someone else, God. Sorry, it's not me today. Pharaoh could not say that. Pharaoh could not say to God, I will not be this rebellious creature. No, he couldn't. Why? The text says, because who can resist his will? Exactly. Exactly. No one. So if God intends to create Pharaoh raise him up for the purpose of displaying his power in a rebellious creature, then that's what he's going to do because no one can resist his will. But the question is, the question posed by Paul is, so how can he still find fault then with those people? Because God created those people, Pharaoh, God created Pharaoh to be a rebellious creature So then how can God then look at that rebellious creature and say, stop being rebellious. I'm going to punish you. It's like, it doesn't make sense. The whole thing doesn't make sense. That's Paul's argument, right? You could say, how could you possibly create someone for destruction? It's not fair. Ah, that's the issue right there that right there. That's why this is hard. That's the thing. It actually is fair that God can create whoever he wants for whatever purpose he wants. That actually is fair because he's God and we are not. This is the freedom of God to do what only God can do. And that is illustrated in the text next. That's why it says, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Can what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? That's that's the full picture, isn't it? Is that you were molded into something, so there's a, a potter and he creates what he's gonna create and he says, Ah, that's exactly what I wanted to because God's a good potter, by the way. He doesn't make mistakes and throw it's like, man, I messed that one up and he throws it in the trash. He doesn't mess up, he doesn't make mistakes. He's a good potter. So he makes exactly what he intends every single time. And can what is molded then look back at the molder and say, at the potter, and say, why'd you make me like this? But, as Paul says, who are you? The creature. To look back at your maker and say, why did you make me this way? Um, We don't have the freedom to do that because we are not God. So, what ultimate answer are we getting at here? 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make, one out of this, uh, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Oh. So God creates certain, the context is people. God creates certain people for an honorable use because he didn't mess up when he made them. And he creates other people for dishonorable use. That, again, is very difficult to let settle into our hearts. But it is what the text says and that is consistent all throughout Scripture. So our answer is in verse 22. What if... And when Paul says, what if, he's pleading with his reader to say, please listen, this is how it works. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That, that's the ultimate answer right there. God intends to display the fullness of his character in the destruction of the wicked that he created for that purpose. That's difficult. Now, we can say that. It's very easy to say it, it's very easy to proclaim it and to stand on it and say that is our sovereign God and he is only good. He is not evil in doing that. He didn't cause people to be evil. He didn't make people sin. He is only good. That is true. But God created a world in, in which evil can occur. And if God wanted to stop evil, guess what? He would stop it. But God wills that evil, sin, rebellion, pain, and suffering exist for the sake of his own glory. For the sake of his own good purposes and glory. Now, why that's still difficult to accept is because, well, what are those good purposes? What is, th- what is that? I want to see it. I want to know. I want to know that what I'm suffering through right now has an ultimate good. Please show that to me. Because I'm suffering right now. Many in this room are suffering through different things. I know that. And you might say, why? Please show me the good. I, I can't. All I can do is point you to the fact that God doesn't make mistakes. God has not made a mistake in the situation that you're suffering through right now, if that be the case. He did not mess up. He is a good God, and he has good plans. And he wills even that evil, suffering, and pain exist for the sake of his good purposes and his glory. God is never the author of evil. However, he does allow evil to exist. Is that true? Yes. Why? you going to question him and be mad at him for that? You're free to do that. I would not suggest that you do it, though. You are free to be mad at God for allowing evil to exist, but what we must trust is that God intends evil to exist for his own purposes and glory. If he wanted to stop it, he could. A couple of examples come to mind, and I am bringing things to a close here. Um, A couple of examples come to mind, and I just want you to see that God does intend evil to exist. I was sharing these with someone else in the room earlier this week, but... It's because they're true. They're, they encompass all of biblical history, and it's just you can't argue with it. Ready? Number one, Joseph. Genesis 50:20. You meant it for evil against me, but... You know the answer, right? I mean, you know how to fill in the blank, but God meant it for good. Wait, wait, wait. So God willed that that evil take place. It's not, but God turned it around for good. No, that's the wrong way to think about that. That's not what it says. You willed this for evil, but God willed it for good because God doesn't make mistakes. Okay, the next one I have is Assyria. Okay, and that's in Isaiah 10, verses five and six. This is my favorite one. I loved when we were going through the book of Isaiah. We got to chapter 10. It was very exciting for me. Maybe not as much for you. It was very exciting for me. It's Isaiah 10 verses 5 and 6. And it says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. What? So let me get this straight. You're mad at Assyria, woe to them, for having a rod of anger in their hands. But then you're saying that the rod of anger in their hands is your fury. What? What? right all is true the evil that Assyria was bringing on the people of Israel was evil and God was going to punish them for it but God willed it to take place in order to punish his people all for his glory and his good purposes but he never authored it he didn't cause those people to be evil and I illustrated this I remember this sermon I illustrated this with coconut oil does anybody remember that no, must not have been a very powerful illustration for you. I, I I, do you? Oh, okay. So c- coconut oil at room temperature is hard, okay? But then when you touch it, it turns liquid, okay? That's a truism. Don't try to prove me wrong, okay? I know that it's not always true that way. But, that, but what I'm saying is that when God places his hand on something, it's soft. But when he removes his hand, the thing goes back to its natural, hard, rebellious state, So, what are you saying? It wasn't fair that God removed his hand of grace on evil, sinful people? As soon as God removed his hand from them, they did evil. But who is it who removed his hand and willed that evil to take place? God himself. But God was not the author of that evil. But he willed it to happen. Okay, and then the final example is Jesus, right? People murdered Jesus. Is that evil? Did God will it to take place? Did He plan for that to take place? Was it God's ordained purposes, and it could not fail, that evil people murder his son? That's it. It's super easy, right? When when you think about it on those terms, it's like, well, I mean, I guess God does will evil to happen, all for what purpose? For his good purposes and his glory. Why does evil exist? for his good purposes and his glory. He not only allows it to exist, he wills it to exist. That's very different, isn't it? So who is responsible for my sin? That's where I wanted to end. Because, uh, uh, okay, I sin. Well, God must have, willed. you just told me that God wills evil to exist. Let's see how much he can will when I go out these doors. Uh, yeah, obviously that's, that's not right. Um, who Who is held accountable for your sin? You are. And there's some passages that prove that. Okay? You are responsible for your rebellion against God. Okay? Now, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, all the sin that you did and all the wrath that you deserve, thank God people murdered his son in order that we might have a substitutionary atonement for our sins and we would not have to pay the wrath of God for all of our rebellion against him, all of our evil. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Isn't that right? So what is our response there at the end? It's my last slide. What is our response? I'm going to just end with a quote from R.C. Sproul. Okay? All of these definitions depend on the positive substance of the good for their very definition. That is... In order to talk about evil, what must you first talk about? The existence of? Good, because there must be something to contrast evil with, right? Otherwise, how can you talk about evil? That's what he's saying. Augustine argues that though Christians face the difficulty of explaining the presence of evil in the universe, the pagan has a problem that is twice as difficult. This is good. Before one can even have a problem of evil, one first must have an antecedent existence of good. Those who complain about the problem of evil now also have the problem of defining the existence of the good. Without God, there is no ultimate standard for good. So what are you even saying is evil? I think that's good. So um, the the objective nature of morality must first exist in order to even say that something is evil. So someone begins to talk to you about the problem of evil. You have scripture on your side. You have the concept of evil. that God is not the author of evil. God wills that evil exists. It's not a mistake, right? And he intends for it to exist because he is sovereign. All the character qualities we know of God are maintained, right? We have formulated a proper theodicy. And what is this theodicy called? A lot of people name their theodicy or whatever. I don't know. It's like, what, a biblical theodicy? A theodicy of God's glory? I don't know what you want to call it. But here it is. God intends and wills evil to exist while maintaining all of his perfect character. So those who want to argue with us, they must first say, well, evil exists. Tell me, what is evil? What are you basing that on? Morality? Where does morality come from? That's a good question. We actually have an objective standard. You do not. Okay? All right. We'll end with that tonight. So let me me pray, and if you have any questions, we'll talk about those, okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for uh, this discussion tonight.